Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. What is my life about? <laughs> what the heck is my life about? And I thought, okay, I want it to be about something that will last. Well, what lasts? Well, I think the only thing that really lasts is probably the kingdom of God in a way. You know, whatever God is doing in the world will last. Everything else won't last. So then I thought, well, what is the kingdom of God about? And I thought, well, I think that's love. I think the core of the kingdom of God is the reintroduction of love into the world. Welcome to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark. I'm the online managing editor for Christianity Today. Today on our podcast, we will have Andy Crouch. Up until about a week or so ago, he was the executive editor at Christianity Today. He's actually been an editor at Christianity Today for a decade plus, at least a decade. So it's it's kind of the end of an era for him and for Christianity Today. Uh, with him leaving, he's going, going to be uh, talking a little bit about his new role and why he felt uh, led to it um, on the podcast. He also talks a little bit about his his sort of insecurities and fears as a writer, which I thought was really fascinating coming from someone with so much experience and expertise. Andy is the author of three books, Playing God, Culture Making, and Strong and Weak, and he has another book coming out later this year called The Tech Wise Family. It's a really good conversation. I'll just leave it at that and let you uh, listen to it. Before we move on to the actual interview, I wanted to mention one thing that I'd highly recommend listeners to The Calling check out, especially if you're a church leader. The Outcomes Conference in Dallas, Texas is a conference for Christian leaders of all kinds, but Christianity Today will actually be hosting a pre-conference there, basically like a summit uh, led and developed by Christianity Today, with Andy Crouch actually heading up that summit. It's called Leading with Hope in a Post-Christian Culture. That'll take place in, in early April, April 4th to be exact, and it'll include a lot of really interesting things. I'll be there, Andy Crouch will be there, Caitlin Beatty will be there, along with people like Tish Harrison Warren, Claude Alexander. I'd highly recommend this day. I think it'll be really good, and I'll be hosting a panel on race and racial reconciliation among local churches. Um, should be a really fascinating discussion. And if you want to sign up for that summit, which comes with the Outcomes Conference, which is actually a, re- a bigger conference. So all I've talked about here is a Christianity Today Church Leader Summit. There's a lot more involved in the week that follows. You can use the coupon code CTCHURCHEXP. So that's CT underscore ChurchEXP. Uh, CT underscore ChurchEXP for $399. That'll get you a one-day summit plus the two-day full conference. It's a full package. That is a really good deal. You'll get, it's basically, it's it's a lot off. It's a hundreds off, basically, the regular price. Um, But we wanted our podcast subscribers to have this experience. So yeah, I'd love to see you there. Let me know if you're coming. Send me a tweet or something. Send us a tweet at CT Podcasts. So yeah, here's my interview with Andy Crouch. Enjoy. We have something that we disagree on. Mm, no doubt. That's how I like to start interviews. 
Okay. It's talking about what we disagree on. It's important right. to it's important to start with the the areas in which you have a conflict. Yes. So we disagree about video games. Ah, <laughs> yes, we do. I remember brother. when I was starting at CT and I saw a tweet or something <laughs> yes. from Andy Crouch. And I have I was, a habit of tweeting uh, sort of thoughtless slams at video games. <laughs> no. If you thoughtlessly it slam many things, it's video games. So yes. tell me, what's your problem, man? <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment where I have some <laughs> semblance of <laughs> We've power. We've been working together all this time. Yes, and now, now you've got me in a small room. <laughs> yes. I have no problem with video games as games. Mm-hmm. I mean, human beings need games. Yeah. I have no problem with video games when engaged in thoughtfully and so forth, but... I just observe that that a lot of people, it's a lot more than a game. Yeah. It becomes a substitute for life. And it's not done in ways that are very intentional. And and I do believe that that the more mediated our lives get and the more mediated our world gets, uh, the more kind of inherently addictive and distorting. What do you mean are. by mediated? So mediated media comes from Latin for middle. So media is anything that comes in the middle between me. I mean, first of all, it's about communication. It's between me and another person, another embodied human being. So interestingly, you and I are having, in one way, an unmediated conversation. Because mm-hmm. we're sitting very close to one another in a little recording studio. However, uh, we are both wearing headphones uh, to monitor our voices for the podcast, so I'm actually hearing you through my headphones, not your natural speaking voice the way I would in an ordinary room. So we're actually having this weird combination of an <laughs> unmediated and mediated conversation, and then all the people who will listen, for whom we will be probably in their ears with a little set of headphones, it's, a, it's very mediated, right? So media puts something in between us and bodily experience of the world. So we were created to have an embodied experience of the world and other people. For example, you and I could go out and toss a football around and that would be an unmediated experience of throwing a football. We'd be outdoors. Today it's about 40 degrees in Chicago. It's a little rainy. We'd be getting a little wet. Uh, we'd be slightly cold. <laughs> Our hands would be getting a little numb as sounds we tossed it back and forth. Yeah, sounds, sounds terrible. terrible. <laughs> so instead, let's play Madden football, right? Yeah. And that will give us a mediated experience of, of doing something related to that game. So I think the more mediation you introduce, the more potential for distortion and addiction you introduce. That's fascinating. So you can get addicted or you can develop an unhealthy relationship, let's say, with backyard football, right, Mm -hmm. with your friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can spend too much time doing that. You can get too competitive. You can not do other things that you should be doing. But I would say all those tendencies are amped up tremendously when you add technological mediation. Layers because and layers of that. I don't know if I know all the reasons mm-hmm. why that is. Partly just observe it. But basically, I think our bodies make things difficult in ways that technology exists. It, the very purpose of a technology is to make those things easy that normally are difficult for us in our bodies. So outside of technology, there's like built-in moderation that happens. Yes. There, yeah. yeah, exactly. So certain kinds of fatigue, for example, That's a really right? Good point. Like yeah. if you and I go out and throw the football around, well, you and I probably after 15 minutes, we're like, okay, let's go back in. Right. But we can sit because of how little a video game demands of us and how stimulating it is. So, so video games are actually less demanding and more rewarding than the real world. So all technology does this, not just, uh, video games are just a particularly immersive, powerful form. They're the most powerful entertainment form commercially in our society, more than movies. Right. So that's my 
analysis. They, they make things too easy and actually their pleasures are too available. I understand they're, they're incredible people doing beautiful artistic work at the kind of edge of the video game world. Maybe mm-hmm. you'd correct me and say, no, no, this is the heart of video games. It's the heart of the video game world. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, it's probably true. <laughs> that, and that could be, but that's not the co- that's not the commercial reality i don't think is it i i can make an argument for or against i mean i think it it depends on it depends on what we're talking about like i think minecraft is actually mm. a pretty beautiful game yeah yeah uh but it definitely has the problems you talk about the th- scary thing about hearing you talk about that is i feel like Sometimes my spare time is made up of just going from one media to the other. Yes. Like, oh, I'm bored of this media. Yes. I better take a break. <laughs> Moderation. <laughs> I better move to this other media. That's a little terrifying. Know, like, I'm tired of Twitter. Now I'll turn on Netflix. I'm tired of Netflix. Now I'll pick up my iPad. I'm yeah. tired of my iPad. Maybe I'll answer some email on my computer. And if it's you're feeling like really just... noble, you'll go to a book, which is still. Which is actually still a kind of media. Yeah. I sort of grant that books with their, especially in the age of the printing press, with their age of ubiquity and availability, have the same general kinds of challenges that our modern technological or electronic media have. But I do think books actually do resist you more, and they engage you in an embodied cognitive way more than, well, we, we're learning this now, that reading on a printed page is a different cognitive experience from reading on a screen, because it involves more of your body, basically. It's a less mediated encounter with a text than a screen-based, even the, a picture of the same page. You'll retain what you read less online than a book. So it's all in a continuum, uh, for sure. And none of it is bad, full stop, I don't suppose. But I am wary of the more immersive and and actually more rewarding things. And I'm afraid a lot of video games, not the ones you play, Uh with deep attention and care, Uh but some of the others. (laughs) Um, Now that we've gotten the sort of easy small talk out of the way, (laughs) I'll ask the question that I always start the podcast with, which is... Start the podcast. How would you define your calling? So this has been a matter of some angst for me because the calling I might have should have had was to the world of the university in that it was the world I grew up around with my father. My father was a university professor when I was a kid. And then I did well in school and was given access to further education and more and more of that. Um, And then I married someone who lives in it. And so, what does she do? My wife, Catherine, is an experimental physicist. So she wow. teaches physics at Swarthmore College outside of uh, Philadelphia. So she's the Dr. Crouch in the family, by the way. Uh, I'm not, I didn't get a PhD, but my wife did. And so, in fact, in my life, I think it's a total of maybe two years of my life that I have not lived within walking distance of an institution of higher education, like uh-huh. a college or university. We live about a 10 minute walk from Swarthmore College now. And it's never been the place I was called to. And so I'm, uh, to borrow a phrase from Paul, I'm in that world, but I'm not of that world. And I'm not Dr. Crouch, and I won't ever be Professor Crouch, really. I had to figure out what I did that was different from what academia did. And, and it was not until my 40s, I would say, that I realized, oh, what I am is a journalist. And then I said, okay, but what was a journalist, really? Because I'm not a journalist in the sense that I spend all my days reporting, as some journalists do. So I came up with my definition of what I do. And it is my definition of a core aspect of my calling, at least. And that is to make complicated things clear quickly for people who could be doing something else 
in the service of truth. To make complicated, complicated things, clear. things clear quickly, quickly for people who could be doing something else in the service of truth. So okay. this distinguishes us, what we journalists do, from scholars who make clear things complicated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Not really fair. But scholarship is about going into the complexity and sort of uncovering the complexity that's at the heart of reality, all realms of reality, physical yeah. reality, social reality. Um, we journalists come along after the scientists and scholars have done their work, and we assimilate all that as best we can. And then we, we take that genuinely complex world out there and render it in ways that are relatively clear. Then we do that quickly. So teachers do that. They take complicated things and make them clear, good teachers. But they don't have to do it quickly. They can have like a whole semester to teach a course. We've got, uh, you know, 45 minutes or an hour on this podcast. We've got 800 words uh, an article online, maybe 3,000 words in print. Maybe 140 characters. 140 characters in <laughs> yeah. Twitter, right? Yeah. So you have to. So journalism is about doing it quickly. When you do broadcast journalism, you've got often only three or four minutes to mm-hmm. do super complex economic stories, geopolitical stories, whatever. For people who could be doing something else, this is crucial. So our audience is a totally discretionary audience. Yeah. They can, like right now, whoever's listening to this, all four people listening to this, mm-hmm. can just decide. I think I'll move on. <laughs> You have a, a high opinion of my 4, audience numbers. <laughs> 40, Four million. Four hundred million. You don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> so literally like at every beat in the conversation, our listeners are deciding, do I want to stay engaged or do I want to trail off to something Try else? Try not to think about that. Yeah. No. And, and you can't, you shouldn't obsess about it for sure. <laughs> right. But it is genuinely the case that my, my job as a journalist is to keep you reading. So when I write, I ask at the end of every sentence, why is the person reading the next sentence at mm-hmm. the end of every paragraph, at the end of every page? And then, uh, so here's the thing. Advertisers do all of this make complicated things clear quickly for people who could be doing something else. So the last clause is important. What journalists do this, we do this in the service of truth, which means we ultimately are accountable not to deliver a commercial message or to get people to make a purchase decision. We are here ultimately to try as best as we can with our limits to name what's true. The tricky thing is when you're in Christian journalism is a lot of people expect that what you're doing is you're kind of an advertising or PR person for the church, but we're not. Actually, we believe in the church, we love the church, and we certainly love the God who calls the church. But we're here in the service of truth, even when it's bad news about the institution, even when it will discourage people. Uh, It's still, sometimes you got to do it. So I realized in my day job, this is really what I do all the time, one way or another. It's why I do I speak, it's why I do I write, uh, it's why I try to do when I edit what other people write. And It uses the gifts that I at one time thought would be kind of academic gifts and realized, no, that's not what I meant to use them for. I meant to use them actually for these super busy people out there in the world, all of us, who need some handle on complexity and some guide toward clarity. But it took you till 40 to... Yeah, to be comfortable with that. I mean, I was doing it it before that, but I couldn't articulate it and I was insecure about it. Because in the world that I spend all my time in, this is not high status work, you might say. Academic world? In the academic world. Yeah. Like, you've failed if you're a mere journalist or if you're a popularizer. And indeed, the books I read are mostly, I mean, I read, I mean, I read a whole range of things, but the books I really learn from are academic works. And I've realized I will never write something that academically significant that has that sort of level of intellectual rigor of the kind that academic work has. Now, I try to write with rigor, but the stuff I write is much more ephemeral, and it took me a long time to believe that was actually my calling. 
Yeah. It is my calling. So you think inherently the work, your books are more ephemeral than the sort of academic work that others do. Yeah, because it has partly to do with the people who could be doing something else. So you've got constantly, you don't have to be slavish about this, but you have to think about what's the moment I'm writing for Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Whereas really the best scientific work, the best Scholarly work is not done for any moment. It's done, it, it, it penetrates to the bedrock of reality. <laughs> yeah. Like quantum mechanics is going to be true forever. I mean, we have, may have new layers to add to it, maybe we have new interpretations of it, but like that work is done for eternity in a way. And, and so is all good philosophy, all good, even all good textual scholarship, like biblical criticism. It's done in a, t- a semi-timeless way mm-hmm. when it's at its best. Mm-hmm. But that's not the journalist's job. The journalist is very timeful yeah. and timely. Yeah. And yeah, so I, you know, I try to write books that will last, I hope they'll last 20 or 30 years. And okay. in 20 or 30 years, people will still read them and see something of value in them. But I know much beyond that, there will be better books on these same topics and more topical and relevant and timely books on them. Your most well-known book is Culture Making, right? Right. I think and so. And how old is that? Uh, 2000. Eight, so nine years as we speak. So okay, so you see, you see, based on what you're seeing now, you think it'll be, it's got another ten years. Uh, yeah, that's probably about right. It's probably at about its half life. Okay, it is funny though the way those those cultural conversations sort of progress. It feels like at at the, when you wrote that book, that was it. That was the cultural paradigm that that changed a lot about the way that I thought about things. Mm. These days, I'm thinking about James Smith and yep. and the liturgy model and exactly. all that stuff. Exactly. I do hope, I try to write in such a way that anyone ever who picked up the book, even if it's, I mean, I don't know how this would happen, but hundreds of years from now, very unlikely, would see something of excellence in it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that it will speak in the same timely way. Whereas there are other things that are being written today that Mm -hmm. I think 500 years from now, people will read them and still say this is... You don't see it as like a postman type thing where someone could pick it up and go, man, this was... Prescient. Prescient and important. Has something to say for our time. Maybe it maybe it w- seemed irrelevant for a while, and now it's relevant mm. again. I don't know that you get to control that. It's well, kind of like yeah, I, it's kind just... of unfair that I'm asking you, like, <laughs> how are your works going to be perceived in the future? I mean, mostly they're not going to be read, right? So, I had this <laughs> now another element of my calling I should mention though. So, a very defining moment. I don't know if it was the very first, but a very defining moment in my calling came in a great, the first really great crisis of my life. Mm-hmm which was total disobedience to the voice of God. Hmm. Um, so I think many of us, especially people who want to talk about calling, imagine how great it would be to have God actually speak to you directly and tell you something mm-hmm. about your calling. Mm-hmm. So I actually had that happen my senior year of college. Okay. Except that the only thing God said to me, because it was the only thing I needed to hear at that moment, was not to go somewhere. So I was following my college girlfriend to Boston where she had a job. And I was praying about this. She'd, she'd graduated a semester before me, so she'd already moved. I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm, I just am really looking forward to going to Boston, and I pray you would bless that decision. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard, I, as much as I could ever say I've heard the voice of God in my life, I huh. heard two words, don't go. Audible? Don't, perceptible. Not audible. Okay. Not audible. No. Interesting. Not for me, but undeniable. Huh. Perceptible. Okay. And I thought... Oh, that must be my repressed fear of commitment. But you, you know, weren't like that must be me making it up. It sounds like you weren't like open, like you weren't trying to hear the voice of God in this. Definitely moment. not. I'm always fascinated because I have a lot of people on this podcast who 
talk about hearing from God and oh. not always follow up on that because I'm always curious <laughs> in various ways God speaks to people. I, so I was praying, but I was not intending to hear from God. I was actually informing God <laughs> right. of my plans <laughs> right. and thanking him in advance for his uh, co- countersigning them. I mean, I did initially think, oh, I'm that must be some unconscious fear of relationship or something. So I prayed again. I actually heard the voice twice in the course of an afternoon of prayer. I thought, well, I want to go and I'm in love with this girl. And so I'm going Mm -hmm. and I just determined to stop praying and go. And I did. And she broke up with me. Two weeks after I got there, in the mm-hmm. middle of a snowstorm at the so end of December. So she had probably already been she asking had, God to tell I, you. I don't think she had to ask God. <laughs> there was no guidance needed I'm on just her. saying before she left, she was probably oh, already like, God. please hey, give him the yeah. hint. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting possibility. That I couldn't rule it out. <laughs> so I, I am in Boston. I, I get there in the middle of the winter. I start uh, my seminary program. <laughs> Which was completely a pretext, like my seminary degree, (laughs) completely a pretext to be in Boston, right? Uh So I'm not doing this out of any obedience. I mean, I'm doing it in in direct defiance to the will of God as best I've been able to hear it communicated. And it was the worst, I would say it was the worst six months of my life at at any point, uh, by God's grace in a way, to date. And among other things that happened, I got pneumonia. Uh, I got a bunch of other things. I got TMJ, so my jaw wasn't working. Uh, just oh, a total physical, emotional meltdown. Wow. Spiritual, lonely as could be. I mean, you know, she was really the only person I still knew in Boston where I grew up, and all my friends are off, you know, doing their thing. Anyway, so I, I get pneumonia, and it, it's about 10 days, if I remember it correctly, where I'm pretty much on my back in, in bed in this little apartment that I had sort of rented with someone I didn't know. And so I'm, I'm sick, and, but you know, you have pneumonia, you're not, you're not deathly ill, at least at that age stage of life. I started thinking about my life and I thought, you know, I'm going to die. <laughs> uh, there's going to be a day when I'll be lying in a bed like this and I will not get up from that bed. And it was the first time in my life, I mean, 20 years old or 21 years old, where I really, this really felt, this will be my reality one day. It'll be the last time I lie down. And I thought, what? what is my life about? (laughs) What the heck is my life about? And I thought, okay, I want it to be about something that will last. Well, what lasts? Well, I think the only thing that really lasts is probably the kingdom of God in a way. You know, whatever God is doing in the world will last. Everything else won't last. So then I thought, well, what is the kingdom of God about? And I thought, well, I think that's love. I think the core of the kingdom of God is the reintroduction of love into the world. Hmm. So then I thought, well, how do I maximally commit myself to the participation in God's love? And it's very humbling when you really seriously think through this because you realize most of the people I'm going to love will forget me very quickly. (laughs) And almost everything I do will be forgotten super quickly. Like at this point, I'd never even thought about writing a book. But you write a book, you know, 20 years if you're lucky. 200 years if you're a genius. And even then, people won't really know you, you know. So I realized there's only one way I could invest my life that would have the most endurance, and that would be if I ever had the chance to have children. Because even though I don't remember the even the names, I can't tell you right now the names of my great-grandparents, I know they've shaped my world, for better and for worse, uh, all of those uh, eight people, in really profound ways. And, and, and it, my life is most shaped by the ones who most embodied love. Uh, to their children who were my grandparents. So I thought, okay, I'm going to pray 
that someday I'll be able to have children. And that is probably the deepest calling of my life. So at, tw- at 20, yeah. you had just been broken up with. Yeah. No prospects. From a super, apparently a serious relationship because you moved for them. Yeah. So you, your response is to pray for children. Yeah. It was odd. Huh. And four years later, I was in a coffee shop with this woman named Catherine Hirschfeld who knew through mutual friends. And we got talking about, well, what, what's your kind of ultimate goal for your life? And we were, we were getting to know each other, but we weren't dating. I think Catherine was a little more clued in that we <laughs> might one day be. And when she said, well, my goal is actually my number one goal is to have children. Now, remember, she was a PhD student at Harvard University in experimental physics. Mm-hmm. Like no one in Harvard Square who's 23, 24 years old says my goal in life is to have children. That's not how you talk about your calling. And I, I vividly remember the table in the coffee shop, Cafe, Cafe Algiers. It's still there. I, I could walk in there right now and show you where we were sitting when she said that. And I said, well, that is what I think my ultimate calling is, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we walked out, and both of us knew. We were like, okay, this is it. Wow. Yeah. How many children do you have right now? We have two. Two. Yeah. So what's the... What's the relationship between that? Those are two different callings, two distinct yes. callings, but I would assume they're pretty equal in importance. Yeah. Is there a coherence there? Do those relate to one another in some way? Do you feel Boy, like that's a good question? Your, your role as dad and your role as journalist are tied together? You know, the answer is different now than it was at the beginning of parenting. At the beginning of parenting, it felt like two totally totally different things. You have this tiny little creature who requires a lot of your attention and who can only, well, who can communicate in very profound ways, but not verbal ways. Right, right. And then you go off and write or edit a magazine, which I was doing at that time. It just feels like these are totally different worlds and how do I keep both of these things together? Um, it's so different now. So Timothy and Amy, our two kids, are now teenagers for now, 19 and 16. And two things have happened. One is, of course, they started to read what I wrote. So each of them has read my books in manuscript stage. Timothy read, well, he was uh, 11 years old when Culture Making came out. He wow. read the galleys for Culture Making at his 11-year-old level, but he read them. That surprises me. Uh, yeah, it was really fun. My wife has pretty much stopped reading everything I write. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, not totally Catherine true. Catherine read it. No, no, Catherine's read, I think, most of my books at some point in yeah. manuscript. But, no, no, there's lots of things I write. Nobody in my family gets around to reading, <laughs> believe me. Um, but but the books, it, they're The books have, it, they're, and there are just moments where it really converges. I mean, another very big thing that happened in both of our lives, in a way, and our magazine's work was, I wrote this piece about Donald Trump uh, called Speak Truth to Trump. That came out. Interestingly, when uh, our whole family was on a pilgrimage in New Orleans with a a group of white and black friends, that is racially white and racially black friends, we call ourselves the Repentance Project, and we make pilgrimages together to places that kind of embody the legacy of slavery, racism, white supremacy in the United States. And the moment that that, uh, piece came out... (laughs) We were about to take a break, and as you know, as you do when you're kind of getting ready to take a break, you kind of pick up your phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and 15 minutes before it had gone live on the site, and already there were all these responses on Twitter. Yeah, and I just realized I need prayer at this moment. And these friends, about 20 friends on this trip, gathered around me and my family and laid hands on us and prayed for all the spiritual reality of writing something that did ended up. I mean, it ended up being read by a lot of people, but. It was so moving to me to have my kids there. They were, I hope this doesn't sound indulgent or or something, they were so proud of me. Like Mm -hmm. they were so proud that I was their dad and that I'd stepped into this really volatile reality and 
done something that they saw. I mean, I, I don't know that they saw as admirable, honorable. So there's that. And then the other thing is I find, especially in my speaking, I more and more bring my experience of what it is to be a parent into the reality I'm trying to interpret for people. So my next book is actually about family and is about technology and family life. But even when it's not directly about that, it just, they intersect. So I think this is very often true for calling that you start out with this sort of very various things you sort of sense are part of the story, but you don't know how they all fit. Mm -hmm. And at least what I think it's appropriate to pray for and what I've experienced in many of my friends who are my age, I'm now 48, is they the, they start to converge. Um, like, do you know the um, THX pre-roll that plays on videos that yeah. shows you that it's a TX, THX certified video? It's like this this uh, crash sounding, this like crystal ball <laughs> drops. It's uh-huh. to show you how great your sound system is, right? Or right. how great the audio is. But then it, it like gr- gathers back together in the form of a beautiful crystalline THX logo. And as it does, all that um, noise converges into this chord. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like that's how calling feels. Yeah. Is all these shattered pieces of things that, that I'm passionate about, pain that I've experienced, gifts that I might have, uh, whatever. I feel like they, they start to converge and there's this deep harmony. So it no longer at all feels disjunct to me that I'm the father of Timothy and Amy and husband of Catherine and that in, with a lot of my life, I make complicated things clear, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because it's about the role that you play in the world, which extrapolates into the role that you play in organizations, in institutions, and in the family. Yeah. So it starts to feel like you're playing a, the same role yeah. in all of those places. At least for me. I mean, I you know, I don't assume this... I certainly don't assume this It's the same for everybody, everybody, I think. I'm just kidding. I don't know. (laughs) In fact, if it's not like that, something's wrong with you, actually. Uh, No, but yeah. And and then the other thing is, um, you know, parenting teenagers is a lot about making complicated things clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Like how to drive a car. Yeah. Uh, So I hope, I don't think my son would mind me sharing that he was asked to prom by Rachel, somebody or other, in his junior year. So she's a senior. He's a junior. She mm-hmm. asked him to go with her. He comes home. He says to me, Dad, I need two things. I need a tux and I need some advice. That is obviously one of the most beautiful moments any parent can have yeah. is to have your son say, help me process what is going on yeah. and what this is could mean and what how I should act and and to get to have that conversation which is taking the unbelievably complicated reality of boys and girls and (laughs) you know and saying well here's some things i think i could offer you timothy that would help you do this in a way that honor her make it really fun make it an experience of growth for both of you gosh that's awesome and it's it's kind of just another version of the same calling in a way god is a genius storyteller and the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. 
back to your journalistic calling. And what you said was that it's not PR for the church. And certainly a, yes. a, typical, a typical journalist, a secular journalist, would say they're in service of the truth. Yeah. What yeah, sets yeah. your calling apart as a Christian? Like what makes, right. how do you live that out in a way that is uh, unique as a Christian? Right. Well, uh, I would say I have a lot in common with my uh, journalist colleague who may not be a believer or may not work at a Christian publication. So we are both seeking the truth and seeking to tell the truth. Yeah. I mean, really, the only difference is we may have a disagreement about what sources of truth we have access to okay. and yeah. what the kind of framework of truth is. Yeah. So as a Christian, whether I was writing, I mean, this is just as true when I write for the Wall Street Journal, which I do every once in a while, or Time Magazine, as for CT, I have a, rever a reference frame for what I believe truth is that, that I operate within and try to be faithful to that may differ from my neighbor who maybe has a smaller reference frame, thinks there's no transcendent truth or, you know, whatever. Right. So it'll overlap, but I do have, there are some things I believe are really deeply true that are very specifically Christian and that do change how I write about everything. Like, I mean, we start out talking about video games. Well, my whole framework for imagining that bodies are basically a gift rather than a burden is Christian. I don't know how to convince you of that, given the frailty and mortality of our bodies. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to convince you of that if I don't believe that a human body is now actually resurrected and present in the divine life, right? Which is the doctrine of the ascension. Without that doctrine, then we can all be happy platonic, you know, dualists and, and hope to float away from our body. So, but as a Christian, I've been given, I believe, uh, through no, obviously no merit of my own, no achievement of my own, just through sheer gift, I have access to this beautiful reality that actually explains reality better, I think, than my neighbor's understanding. Now, this leads to an interesting addendum to that, which is the other group of people who do that same job description in many ways are preachers. Hmm. So a preacher takes a you know, the, at least ideally, a preacher takes hours and hours of preparation, condenses it into 30 or 40, you know, whatever minutes of, of sermon to people who could be doing something else. <laughs> at least these days, you know, nobody has to show up for church. And right. yet here they are and does that in the service of truth. And so you could ask, what's the difference between a sermon and the work that we do as Christian journalists? And I would answer, it's which end of truth you start with. <laughs> so the preacher begins with what you could call, uh, sorry for the big theological word, uh, but eschatological truth, truth, ultimate truth, yeah. right? And works back to the situation of the people within that person's hearing. And so applies that ultimate truth to the truth about our lives right, right now. And a, a good preacher tells the truth about both what our lives are really like right now, what it's really like to wrestle with your technology addiction, and, and yet also puts in the context of, say, the doctrine of the ascension. Whereas I think Christian journalists start the other way around. The mm -hmm. truth we are first faithful to is what things are like right now. Okay. In the light of ultimate truth. But we don't start the way the preacher does with ultimate truth or else we're sermonizing. We start with, okay, yes, the church is this beautiful bride of Christ, but let's look at what it is today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's where we start. So that tells me that you would either be really open to or really opposed to being a preacher one day or a pastor have you is that something yeah. you consider i mean you went to seminary for a brief moment right yeah, yeah. I, I followed through on it you did uh, yeah, I, that's yeah, right. yeah what was your degree just i'm div okay yeah well i do preach i mean often right in, in one way or another i mean yeah. i i do use whatever journalistic capacity as i might have to to actually d deliver the gospel and when in, you're doing that you're doing what you just talked about you're going from start from the ultimate 
yeah. and you work your way back to where we are. Okay. But I don't do that when I write. So what I, well, I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> uh, I think my book, Playing God, is a book that really starts with the ultimate reality about, in this case, the topic of power. Okay. And then works back to the way we experience power in the world. Sure. So I'd probably do, I, I'm not at all averse to the idea of preaching. And yet I have never, I've, I've never felt the call to a kind of church pastoral leadership. I spent 10 years in campus ministry, which has dimensions of pastoring, shepherding, and preaching, but not quite the same as a, a church position. And I, I have been very clear, just as I've been clear, I'm not called to be ordained, as you might call it in the academy, I'm not called to be ordained in the church. So I'm not ordained. I'm not Reverend Crouch, and I'm not Dr. Crouch. Right, <laughs> I'm just right. Andy. That's it. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been at CT? 11 years. 11 years. 2005. Uh, Did you? Is th that uh, almost 12? Okay. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah, because I feel like as long as I can remember really caring about CT, I mean, I think I kind of like a lot of people grew up aware of it, and then I started to, to care about it, mm. and you were a part of it at mm. that point. What was your role in 2005? I had been writing a column uh, okay. a little bit before that. And then uh, CT actually got a grant from the Pew Charitable Trust and uh, asked me to manage it and to create kind of a series of articles. And we ended up doing some filmmaking as well. We called it the Christian Vision Project. Three years asking kind of big questions about culture and the gospel and the mission of the church. So, and that's what I did for a lot of my time at CT was kind of projects like that, journalistic right. projects. Yeah. So, so then we did, did one. This is our city. This is our city yeah. was another one we did. Yeah. And so I led that for a while and then became executive editor and had more involvement for a few years in the overall magazine. Did that feel like a sweet spot for you since journalism was your thing? What had you done previously? I had uh, led a little magazine uh, called Regeneration Quarterly for five years. That right. was a beautiful, beautiful magazine with no business model and so died. And then before that was campus ministry. So 10 years of not journalism and not thinking about journalism, just loving undergraduate students and shepherding them through, you know, the undergrad years and through a fellowship. Toward the end of the time in campus ministry, which I loved mm -hmm. uh, and in some ways miss still, but I, I realized I had to be engaged with kind of, um, I had to be thinking things through in a way that just the daily relational work of ministry doesn't make space for. And journalism was the place to do that. What really strikes me about this moment in your life, this was the, so CT was kind of like the, the big like official journalism period yeah. Yeah. Of, your, of your life, right? Yes. Where you're living out this journalism calling in a clear way. You are, I think it's out there now, you're leaving <laughs> the time of your right, we're recording this, you just announced it to the public. Right. You're, le you're leaving uh, CT right. as of today, this is your last day. Yep. What is, uh, are you, would you say you're doing journalism after this? What Talk about like what mm. you're doing and how it relates to what your calling is. Yeah, so the encouraging thing in the midst of, you know, it's tumultuous to leave an organization, institution that I've invested a, a lot into, right. and there were many sort of lines of discernment that led to the move. Sure. One thing that is not moving at all is actually I feel like I am going to just continue to do making complicated things clear quickly for people who could be doing something else in the service of truth. Yeah. Uh, I'm joining a, a charitable foundation, the John Templeton Foundation, that that is actually all about, all of their grant making is about the search for the truth about the world and ourselves. 
and the connections that often we don't make between kind of our scientific quest and our religious quest. Sure. Uh, so Templeton is really unusual and that it gives substantial grants, both to very basic science, like the kind of science my wife and her colleagues do, and to religion and to the conversation between them. And it has other things it does, but that's a major component. And my job is, the title we came up with was Senior Strategist for Communication. And so my job is actually to help Templeton talk about what it does to a world that doesn't really have categories for this. So it doesn't, and Templeton, by the way, is not a Christian uh, organization. Mm. Uh, It's the things that we fund are multi-faith or people who may not have a faith. Um, There's a very broad mandate, lots of different partners. But the underlying thing is so congruent with what I care about, which is this desire to bring things back together and mm-hmm. actually to kind of bring that cord back together. In fact, I would say science and religion in some ways are the the deep human, the like there are calling as a race, right? Or as a, right. As a human race um, to know about the world and to know the maker of the world, I would say as a Christian. We at Templeton get to fund efforts to bring harmony back into those sort of splintered human realities. And my job will be to help as clearly as possible, help all of the the whole team there communicate to the wider world what we're doing. And a mission that's not easy to communicate and that is really complex. Uh, And then the things that Templeton funds are sometimes very, very abstract and very academic. And I don't understand a lot of it, right? right? I mean, it's very technical, but we want to sort of surface all the good stuff that's happening. So it feels amazingly congruent with the journalism it's just it's it's a different it's in the service of a slightly different mission but but overlaps in so many other ways right so but it isn't kind of the end of an era for you right yeah it's it's a it is this is a (laughs) massive this is the most massive transition of you know since i since the little beautiful magazine that i edited went uh belly up right yes so um (laughs) what what would you say in the course of uh, your work. And I guess I would say, I mean, it doesn't, it's not limited to CT though. That seems like it, it would be the most likely area where it would come, where you would talk about, cause it's, it's the most of what you've done in terms of journalistic stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess books and stuff as well. So all of that in all of that, like, what would you say is the biggest struggle you've had in terms of living out your calling? I think, uh, I think the biggest struggle is having the courage to write. I, in fact, I don't even think there's a close second. I think that is clearly the biggest struggle. It is the the internal war to overcome my own resistance, procrastination, perfectionism, fear of what people will say. I mean, all these things just get wrapped up in a very tangled ball and and to actually sit down and do what I know I'm supposed to do. Whatever it is, it can be small, it can be like a 500-word thing, or it can be a book. And I experience such resistance and such fear that I will fail my readers and my whoever's paying me to do it in a sense. I mean, that, I don't just mean it in terms of money, but like the partners. Right. I'll, I'll fail my right. partners. Right. And I will, the thing I'm, I don't, I, I care about those first two categories, but what I really fear is failing the material itself. I just won't do justice to it. And I'll write something bad and overcome it. I mean, I was supposed to turn in my first book, Culture Making, in 2006, if I remember the timing correctly. I don't know. It may have been. It was 2005. Uh, I was supposed to turn it in January 2005. 
And I did not turn it in until September of 2007. So almost two and a half years late. <laughs> wow. And most yeah. of that was just paralysis. Yeah. Uh, and and just not being able to bring myself to write it. I've heard that kind of thing so often. They must have a built-in like buffer, right? Where they know, <laughs> where they know, like oh, first-time authors or something. Oh, my my wonderful editor Al, she who I loved working with on that book. Um, he made he did make one mistake. I I had to meet with him <laughs> like a week before the due date. I had so. The, it's supposed to be like a 90,000 word manuscript. I had 3,000 words. Uh-huh. Okay, so a week before it's due. Almost there. <laughs> <laughs> so I sit down with that. Al. It was, it was very painful. This is the first time I've done this. Now, since then, I've become a master of procrastination. I'm used to having these conversations, but this was my first time. So, you know, I tell him this with much regret and genuine shame. All right. And he says, oh, that's not a problem. We have authors who have taken years to turn in their books. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Al, that is not what you should say to right. me at this moment. <laughs> that seems like the tool rules of publishers is have, Always have, a, plan. have a buffer and, and never, never tell, them. tell them about the buffer. <laughs> Ever. Ever. It's just so funny because like that is the opposite of how we work. If they're going to turn it in two days later, I'm like, just forget it. <laughs> I know, know it's true, right? Book Books are a different game. Yeah. Uh, and the books are harder. Books are just hard and harder right. in every way. I would right. much rather write at the magazine length. And I feel less resistance most of the time when writing for our, our kind of stuff. But even that, that that is the struggle. So tell me the scariest article you've written for CT. I wrote one... Gosh, I'm trying to remember what we ended up titling it. Some other editor titled it. Uh, I can't actually remember. I think it had to do with all the many letters in the enumeration of sexual minorities. So LGBTQIA. Uh, and I wrote just a, a Lord, Lord have mercy, a one or I guess a two page editorial mm-hmm. about this tremendously complex reality that we are all living in and among. And, um, and you know, essentially tried to say that Which we is should, what, like eight hundred words, right? Yeah, a two page. yeah, maybe maybe a thousand. Okay, uh, yeah, short, <laughs> and and tried to honor the reality of people who feel that one of those letters represents them, and also try to offer. Uh, I said, I think one sort of angle of the piece was we need another letter, which is H, which is human. This is actually not a. This is a human experience. This dislocation between. Our bodies, right? Back to our bodies. Our what our body tells us we need and want, and who we are, and all these disjunctions are actually a human experience. So add H to the list and put me on that list, even though by certain measures I might not fit some of those other letters or or any of the other sexual minority letters. And just because obviously such a controverted issue then and now, it's about four or five years ago, mm-hmm. um, because so many of my friends are implicated in it. I mean, mm. so directly. Uh, I've had the great gift of having very close friends um, in probably every single one of those letters and, and more. And just wanting to do it, well, wanting to do it right. It was scary. And knowing that knowing that no matter what I wrote, people would say negative things. Yeah. <laughs> and and be people would be hurt. People would be angry. People would be critical. And they were all those things, of course. And that was that was maybe the most the most at least I was the most aware as I wrote it. This is a very weighty responsibility to try to speak faithfully on this. I want to talk about the Trump piece for a few reasons. One, because you brought it up. Mm-hmm. Two, because it feels like if this were fresh air or something, it would totally come up. Right? <laughs> that's the, that's exactly the kind of thing that you you wrote this piece, and it was like one of your last big pieces that you wrote for us. Yeah. 
it was it was our biggest piece of the year by far. It was clear something was happening, right? When yeah. when that piece went up. I feel like we should say a lot of people interpreted this piece in one way. Mm. Um, which is like an anti endorsement. Mm. And I I think we can say we didn't absolutely mean not. that. Absolutely we not. we were not writing about who to vote for. No. It was more about how. It was more about the how. How to think about presidential candidates and in particular this one yes well said okay thank you so now that we've gotten that out of the way <laughs> i just felt like record. that was important context that yeah, is yeah so when you sat down to write that piece like what was the the feeling you were having and the thought process you had in response well i think it's important to give the context that we'd been talking for months about one way or another different permutations of us on the editorial staff have been talking about what to say, what not to say, whether to wade in, whether not to. We have a kind of a primary journalistic responsibility, it seems to me, to inform, not to sort of put our thumbs on the scales and opine unnecessarily. For a long time, I also felt like, look, uh, anything I could say about this particular candidate, people should be able to see. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to say anything that is not evident to those who can see. So in a way, it was this very protracted process, I think helpfully so, of not just jumping in when everybody everybody was jumping in. And, and I'm grateful for people who wrote back, you know, a year before, uh, but just for us. Yeah. All that being said, when it came to that weekend, and of course, terribly salacious uh, documentation had come out of things we all knew were true already. This was the video, the, the access video. Right. Right, yeah. That was a factor. For whatever reason, our own internal staff, which had not been unanimous, not by any means been unanimous on whether we should take a position or how, suddenly even the people who most resisted and people who had good reasons for pushing back and saying, not sure it's the right time to opine, said it's the right time. Yeah. And so when I sat down to write it, I was on a plane to New Orleans. I mentioned that that was where I was. So I was on the plane and, and I drafted it on the plane. And I have to say at that point, I felt, I just, I don't want to over spiritualize it. I felt a very just clear sense of calling and freedom to say what had been brewing for a long time. Right. <laughs> and frankly, what other people had said, I mean, there's nothing in that piece that's totally novel. But felt a clarity and a momentum, and I got off the plane with a decent draft, and then I sent it, obviously, for others to read, and really good improvements were made, and then I got up really early Monday morning and revised it, and, you know, and through the whole thing just had this sense of clarity, like, now we need to speak, and this is roughly what we need to say, and obviously other people can help refine it, and did. So, it was... It was an amazingly fearless process hmm. given the stakes and given how long we'd waited. And then if I had not had that group to pray, I think it would have been a spiritual disaster. Because huh. the, the, the group the that you were on the retreat yeah, with. Yeah, the people we were with. Yeah. If they hadn't had the presence of mine uh, wow. to gather around me and my family, pray deeply for us. And for me to be able to look at these men and women who we've gone on these incredibly painful and beautiful pilgrimages with, and we know each other, we don't know, you know, we're not, there's more we can know about each other, but we do truly know and trust one another. You can't not, after some of these experiences and conversations we've had, and know 
these are, this is not mediated. There are hands on my shoulder, all over my shoulders and my back mm-hmm. of people who I've walked with, who know me, who, who I can trust. And it just, it was like all the spiritual power of all the reactions that would come negative and positive just evaporated as they prayed and never came back over the following week when, you know, my phone rang with every DC and New York area code. I now have the best Rolodex because I know all the producers. <laughs> uh-huh. They all wanted me to come on broadcast media, which I decided not to do. Um, Why? I don't think I'm called to it. Okay. I I, uh, I have a wonderful face for radio, uh-huh. first of all. I'm not particularly telegenic. And uh, I know I'm not called to do it on an ongoing basis. So why do it for a week? Okay. Like why show up and, and sit in these tiny little rooms with an earpiece in your ear with the person you're talking, it's mediated, right? Yeah. And it's high stakes mediated and you have very little control. And what am I going to say in that little room on, with that camera on me better than I said in the piece that we spent a whole, I mean, spent months talking about and then a weekend refining. I'm not going to say anything better. And there are other people who are called to it. So I just sent p- the producers to them. I said, look, talk to Sam Rodriguez, talk to Claude Alexander, talk to Russell Moore. And I had a list of people who are are evangelicals like CT who are often in these many cases on our boards, but who are called to that kind of public presence. And I'm not. So, so, you know, there was uh, a lot of the feedback was very positive, but that can go to your head too. And, and it just felt like it all rolled off in this beautiful way. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I, I am convinced if I hadn't had that group pray for me, it would have been a very different experience. What would it have been like? Anxiety ridden, very high ups and downs, like elation when somebody you care about says something nice about it. You know, like, I mean, famous people retweeted, you know, I mean, I admire Nick Kristoff. He wrote about it, or I forget whether he tweeted or wrote in his column, right. you know. Uh, but then other people who I would want to please, you know, or even people I don't know saying extremely harsh things. It's or, interesting. Know, it's interesting because you talked about feeling essentially better after you've written a piece and it's out in the in the wild right. it seems like this had the potential to be the, the opposite experience yeah, to overwhelm where... right it could have i really think it could have yeah. and i've experienced that you know from time to time uh with other things so it was just so beautiful to just have none of that that's uh, yeah that's awesome <laughs> that's really good Thanks i remember be being and this often happens as an editor which i'm sure you know you often worry about the writer you oh. know when a piece when a huh. piece blows yeah. up in that way, yeah. That's you just right. worry. No, you do, because it the spiritual octane of that is really dangerous. Uh, fame. So fame, I would define as being known by people who don't actually know you. And it, it goes back to mediation. It's not real. It's never adequate. There's And yet there's a hunger. We have a hunger for it. It, it meets unmet things very lodged sometimes very deeply in our souls. And so, yes, when I see something doing well, whether we published it or someone else did, I always think about, oh, man, that's a spiritual challenge for that person right. to handle that in a healthy way. Whether or not it's well received. Oh, yeah. It doesn't. That doesn't. That's not the index. Yeah. It's not a sign. It's amplitude. So, can it, <laughs> right. It's, yeah. it's not whether it's negative or positive. It's the sheer amplitude of attention. That is the spiritual danger. And actually, I would say positive is more dangerous because we all want to believe well of ourselves. And so when other people validate that in su- in and you you know, you have thousands of retweets and thousands of likes, you're like, well, finally someone has seen the truth about my genius. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm agreeing with everything you're saying except that on Twitter, when people like and retweet my stuff, it's real satisfying. I have no answer for that. Like, you're right. 
And yet, I don't know how to pull myself away from that mindset of like, uh-huh. this is real fun. It's like, well, it's, maybe fun is a better word. Like, I don't feel fulfilled, but it's like, I'm having fun right now. Yeah. And it's it's an index of calling that you're motivated by that. So you want to make a difference. I think there's actually another th- difference, I think, between journalists and, and scholars is I think scholars, many scholars, the best scholars, are satisfied just when they've done the work to the level of excellence they know it requires. And even if only five colleagues in their subspecialty will read it, it's fine. I think we're motivated by a transformative effect yeah. on a, a relatively large audience. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that except in the way that there's something wrong with every merely human motivation, yeah, right? And, it, yeah. and and the feeding of that apart from it being deeply integrated into the rest of our lives with community and with God is dangerous. So, yeah, I had the great gift at that very, very famous moment. And it's just a moment and it evaporates so fast. It's gone so fast, which is the other reason it's really toxic is now you're like, where do I get another hit of that? Uh, but But instead, it just was there and then it was gone and... And the things that really mattered were all still intact. Um, last question. Uh, this is always the last question. If you could get into a time machine, go back in time, step out of that time machine, introduce Andy Crouch to young Andy Crouch. Oh, <laughs> okay. I was wondering how far back we were going. <laughs> Ages, As obviously. far back as you want, but just younger. Young Andy Crouch. What would you say? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what would you tell him? Slow down. I I was moving so fast. For years, I'm not sure I still have it, but for years I kept my day timer, which was, was an artifact of the 1980s that no one remembers. Like a planner anymore. type A planner, thing. a day yeah. planner. Yeah. It was a specific model. I, and you had it monthly. It was a monthly thing, and you had one for every month. I, I kept the one for December of my senior year of high school because it was so packed with activities that there was literally no more room left to write on these wow. calendar pages. Just, In high school? Yeah. Overcommitted, beyond... I mean, and I kept it as, I, I found it in a drawer, you know, a year or two later, I was like, oh, that was crazy. Like mm. that month was crazy. So I would say, slow down. And then I would say, do not be afraid. I mean, everything, I so much anxiety of so many kinds when you're young and now too, by the grace of God. And it could have been otherwise, but wow, I, I just would, would say, do not be afraid. The things you're afraid of are, are not the things to fear. What right? were you afraid of? Oh, God. Uh, not mattering, uh, not making a difference, not being loved, not having anyone to love. And this was probably all tied to this slow down thing. Like Probably. The- yeah. I, it was all, it was, I remember a very early experience in ministry. Halfway through college, I took a year off and I was working at a retreat center and retreat groups would come in and this one retreat group came in and we had this weekend together where sometimes God just shows up on retreats and I got to be part of that as kind of a staff person and had this intimate, powerful, rich experience in ministry. And I remember, I vividly remember watching the bus drive away and just weeping and thinking, I'll never, I'll never experience that again. Hmm. I'll never, it'll never be this good. Totally not true. Just totally not true. It's been, I mean, that was wonderful and very special time. That but was when? In 1987, when I was halfway through college. And how long until it was that way again? How long did it take? <laughs> well, maybe a few years. I mean, there were some pieces that had to be in place for longer-term community, but 
But no, the richness of what I've gotten to experience in life, the people I've been with, and the power of God that showed up in places that, by God's grace, I've been in at that moment, like down to the last weeks and months, why did I fear that the best was not yet to come, you know? So slow down and don't be afraid. Great. Andy, thanks. Thank you, Richard. You've been listening to The Calling. Andy Crouch is the author of Culture Making, Playing God, Strong and Weak, and The TechWise Family. You can follow him on Twitter at AHC. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.